Tonight, straight from the source, the Supreme Court getting a remarkable request from special counsel Jack Smith. The high court says it will fast track consideration of Trump's claim that he's immune from prosecution in his election case. Plus, Rudy Giuliani in court today with a jury set to decide how much he'll pay for defamatory lies that threaten the lives of two election workers. Lies, I should note, that he is still pushing outside the courtroom. Also, the pregnant woman at the center of a flashpoint in America right now has just left her home state to get an abortion as the Texas Supreme Court has just ruled against her. We'll have the latest. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, we have exclusive reporting in the Trump classified documents case, a phone call that apparently is of interest to special counsel Jack Smith from the former president to a former longtime employee in Mar-a-Lago who was there for key conversations surrounding that case. More on that important reporting in a moment. But also we have major news about the nation's highest court on Jack Smith's second case against Donald Trump, which the special counsel is warning could be delayed indefinitely if the justices don't intervene. He's asking them to move and to do so quickly. Now, the Supreme Court has agreed to at least put its consideration of whether or not to hear that case on a fast track. At the heart of this is Trump's argument that he's immune from prosecution. By doing this, Jack Smith is essentially leapfrogging past an appeals court on the matter where it was likely headed next, likely trying to beat Trump at his game that we know his lawyers are at least pursuing here of delaying his legal troubles. Jack Smith is arguing that, quote, nothing could be more vital to our democracy than holding a former president accountable. The Supreme Court responded just hours after he made that filing and gave Trump's team a deadline of nine days from now. Trump's claim has been that presidents are exempt from being prosecuted in federal court for crimes that were committed potentially while they were in office. He has now until December 20th to respond to this expedited ask by Jack Smith. He responded to Jack Smith's filing, unsurprisingly, by criticizing him, he does so on a near daily basis, saying that he is, quote, attempting to bypass the appellate process. Here's what his legal team has argued previously about the case. This is this is going to be the most important civil rights constitutional case in decades. Everything that President Trump did was while he was in office as a president. He, he is now immune from prosecution for acts that he takes in connection with those uh, policies. That is John Lauro, Trump's attorney. But now Jack Smith is asking the high court to use an unusual procedure here. But it does have historical precedent because it's the same maneuver that was used with President Nixon regarding his refusal to turn over tape recordings and other documents. That was when the justices rejected his claims of presidential privilege and they moved quickly so that one of the Watergate-era cases could also keep moving. question of whether or not that history applies tonight is a big one, and I'm joined now by former Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. and former Senior Investigative Counsel for the January 6th Select Committee, Temadayo Agonga-Williams. Thank you both for being here. I mean, Cy Vance, let me start with you, because this isn't even just a case about Trump. It's almost bigger than him in the sense of, if they do agree to take this up, the precedent that this could set. It is obviously a very important step Jack Smith has taken. I think he has made the right call in terms of trying to expedite this, given the calendar that the political calendar and the court calendar. Uh, and uh, 
Tim and I were talking. Uh, it's a, it's a fascinating as to what the court will do, but I think he's done the right thing by expediting it. Uh, I don't think the issues that Jack Smith presents are particularly novel. Uh, we know from Nixon that a president can be investigated while in office. We know from the case I was involved with, Trump v. Vance, that a president could be uh, investigated for prior for conduct prior to when he was in office. I don't think, uh, as John, Donald Trump says, that he could go to Fifth Avenue and shoot someone while he's a president and be immune from office. That prosecution might be delayed while he was in president or having committed another crime. But I don't think the president's arguments, in my view, really uh, uh, can surmount the precedent that has already been set in the Supreme Court about the constitutional protections of a president. Yeah, and clearly what the Trump legal team has been trying to do here is kind of drag this out. I mean, they're going to an appeals court here. Jack Smith is basically trying to to go over that and say, eventually this is going to go to the Supreme Court. I might as well go to them now. What do you make of the fact, Tim, that they went and the Supreme Court justices responded quickly, not necessarily of what they're going to do with the case, but to at least fast track whether or not they will hear the case? I think it's a positive sign for Jack Smith. I think it shows they're taking it seriously, that they're going to act swiftly. And I think it makes it all the more likely that in the long term, we're going to hear, get it to a quick resolution of this case. I mean, it's clear the former president wants to have it both ways. You know, Caitlin, as you know, before Judge Chutkin, he was asking her, to basically stay all deadlines as they were going up to the circuit, trying to slow things down there, because he says he needed a higher court to rule because he would be harmed if the case went forward and he was ultimately found to have immunity. Jack Smith is calling his bluff. He's basically saying, if you really think you have immunity, let's go to the ultimate decider now. And I think that's a good move here. It's bold, but I think it's what's required. Because if, if you have a delay here, I think it's likely that we'll, President Trump would never see a day in courtroom if he wins the presidency. How do you think the court sees this? I mean, you've been on the other side of the Trump delay tactic. They're, they don't shy away from it. They openly acknowledge you know, that this is a, a tactic of theirs to delay this past the election. How do you think the Supreme Court looks at this? You know, in our own experience in litigating to the Supreme Court in trying to obtain Trump's tax returns, first of all, the Every court at every level treated it seriously. The district court, the appellate court, the Second Circuit, and the Supreme Court in terms of moving the case in its calendar. So I think they, uh, I think they will treat this as a serious issue. I don't know how they come out, but I do think that they will. They understand uh, the importance and the timing of Smith's request, and I think they, res they will respect that, is my guess. Uh, but, I, but how they rule on it, uh, if, in my view, if they're looking at Supreme Court president, I think I know how they would rule on it. I really don't know what they're going to do. Well, that's a good question because, you know, you think, do you think that they would grant it? Well, no, I, I think that they would grant the expedited hearing. Mm -hmm. And I think on the merits. Uh, they'd reject it. They'd reject, you know. That he's immune. Yeah, they reject immunity. Okay, but. So there's a question tonight about the makeup of who's going to be hearing this. Justice Clarence Thomas, there's two Democratic senators saying that he should not, that he should, one saying he should consider recusing, one saying he should flat out recuse because of something you know well, which is his wife, Ginny Thomas's efforts to overturn the election, to push to overturn it, and at the heart of this case are Trump's efforts to overturn the election. I mean, is that something that is at all likely here, you think? I think it's unlikely that Justice Thomas would recuse himself, but I think the calls for that consideration are are very appropriate. You know, the committee had messages between Ginny Thomas and the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, about the very issues that President Trump is charged with. And she was expressing her, 
her uh, support for overturning the election results to Mark Meadows as he was playing train conductor for all kind of folks trying to get messages to the White House. I think if you imagine the same scenario and you found out, for example, that Judge Chutkin's husband was involved with these issues, I can guarantee you the former president would be calling for her to recuse herself. So I think here, when you find the facts as uh, justice here, his wife uh, having access to the White House, and she doesn't have access, in my opinion, because she was somehow purely a conservative leader, it's because of who she's married to, which is the Supreme Court justice. And I think it does undermine the court's independence to have Justice Thomas weighing in when his w- wife was involved in the same orbit of criminal conduct. I have a strong feeling he's not going to recuse himself. We know that, you know, part of Trump's data is apparently something that Jack Smith, we don't know how much, but he does have part of it. He is planning to use it in this case. We're also learning something interesting in a separate case about Trump's use of the phone, Cyrus, which is we're reporting that three months after that search that the FBI did of Mar-a-Lago, this is in the other Jack Smith case, the the documents case. case, the Florida case, that Trump took this unusual step of calling a longtime employee who had quit. He said he went to pursue another business matter. But he essentially was calling him repeatedly that there were interactions talking about offers of legal representation, complimentary tickets to a golf tournament, repeated reminders that he could come back to work for Trump. This is reporting from Caitlin Polance. Why is that something that Jack Smith is interested in? Well, assuming it's admissible, it's to prove that Trump... Uh, under, I think, the theory was trying to circle the wagons around all the witnesses who had relevant information and those that he had a personal connection with uh, would be within that circle of wagons. I don't know the facts, uh, but if I were, but based as you describe it, that's what I think Jack Smith would be doing was that in response to subpoenas in response to an investigation, the former president was reaching out in a way that in one sense might seem appropriate, but it's for the jury to decide what was his intent when he did that. Yeah, it wasn't mentioned in the filings, but we'll see if it pops up anywhere else. Cyrus Vance Jr., Timodayo Agonga-Williams, thank you both, as always. Thank you. And joining me now is someone who knows the way that Donald Trump ticks, what gets under his skin, Anthony Scaramucci, who had a brief stint as the communications director for the White House uh, of course, maybe better known is the Mooch, Mr. Scaramucci. Thank you for being here. I just am curious what you think is kind of going through Donald Trump's head right now. As Jack Smith is here go, surprising everyone by going past the appeals court, going straight to the Supreme Court, and basically trying to cut off Trump's known strategy uh, of delaying his legal troubles. So I, I think it's a brilliant move by Jack, but if you really want to get inside the president's mind, uh, he's very, very worried You've got 91 counts, four big indictments. Uh, It feels like he is the Al Capone of our current political system, meaning people think he's untouchable, just like they did with Al Capone or somebody like John Gotti, but they actually are not untouchable. And so he's very, very worried. Uh, I do know that he thinks because he appointed six of those, or excuse me, three of those justices, but he has six that are conservatives. I do think that he thinks he's got a good shot there. He thinks that that court is politicized and will tip to his favor. And obviously, Jack Smith doesn't think that. I certainly don't think that. And uh, I think it's a great strategy, Caitlin. We'll, we'll have to see what happens. But I think the president is very worried. Yeah, whether or not it works. And I mean, when you say he's very worried, it's not out there to say that what he is staring down right now, potentially, is a second term as president, or 
if he does end up going to trial, as is scheduled right now for at least one of these cases, this one that's at the heart of this, in March, that he could be potentially facing a prison sentence if they are successful in a conviction. I mean, is that all he's thinking about at this point, do you think? I, I do. And I also think that uh, Mark Meadows, I mean, we're, we're leaving that out of the equation, but this is not, you know, he's not able to say on certain things that this is a witch hunt uh, by Democratic leadership or Democratic uh, uh, district attorneys or attorney generals and so forth. He's just not able to say that. You have one of the key witnesses ran the Freedom Caucus and was his last chief of staff. And so uh, that's right inside the wheelhouse. And so that's another reason why he's worried about these people that have access to his phone or he's talked to on the phone. Uh, Kaylin, you covered him for a long time and you had sources inside the White House that were always concerned about the president's morality and his judgment relating to what was legal and what wasn't legal. And I think Jack has evidence uh, that proves a lot of illegality on the on the part of the president. And so um, the question I, I was going to would love to ask Cyrus or others is, are they able to submit proof of what the president did to the Supreme Court? Or is this a procedural case in front of the court, you know, in terms of what's going on with immunity while you're president? And so I think that's the issue, because if if Jack comes at this thing with five or six smoking guns, I'm just wondering what justice who wants there to be impartiality and wants to preserve the American democracy, how they would feel about those facts if they unfold it. Would you like to weigh in? Sure. I'm curious I, I, your thought I, about it, on that as well. I, I think the Supreme Court today is a very different court than the one that we appeared before several years ago. It, it is, as Mr. Scaramucci said, uh, three now Trump appointees. I like to believe, even though I think the Supreme Court has been perceived as perhaps the most political court in the country rather than the least, I like to believe that the justices will call it as they see it under the law. And my own personal view is that I think the issues of presidential immunity uh, in, in this case are not that unclear. And I think they, if they follow the law that's been that started with Nixon, went through Clinton, went through went through Trump's last last travails to the Supreme Court. They'll conclude uh, that, as some have said before, no one is against the law. No president stands immune uh, from investigation or prosecutions once he or she is no longer in office. When you're in office, it's a different, perhaps different kettle of fish because you have a country that the country that the citizenry has elected you to lead. When you leave that office you lose those immunities. We will see what they decide. Thank you very much for that. Good question, Scaramucci. Uh, thank you very much for joining us as well. Ahead, there are major developments in the case that we have been following here closely of a pregnant woman in Texas. She sued to have an emergency abortion. The Texas Supreme Court has just weighed in, ruling against her, her desperate decision now to leave the state because of her health. Also, jailed Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, missing. According to his attorneys, more on that mystery of his whereabouts coming up. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu 
which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. There's been a dramatic turn for the Texas woman who is at the center of a legal fight to end her high-risk pregnancy. Kate Cox's doctors say that her unborn child has a fatal genetic condition and will not survive, and that her own health is also at risk. She's been in and out of the emergency room, we are told by her attorneys, and now they say that she has left the state of Texas to have the emergency abortion procedure elsewhere. That came just hours before we learned that the Texas Supreme Court tonight ruled against her, reversing a judge's ruling last week that gave her permission to seek an abortion, to have an exception there. Joining me tonight is Anna Navarro. You know her well as a part of the CNN family, but she also has her own personal experience to share about this, about what women, just like Kate Cox, are going through. And she joins me now. And I'm so glad that you're here, especially given what we just heard from the Texas Supreme Court in this filing. I want to read part of it for for people who haven't said or who haven't read it. And they said in this that no one disputes that her pregnancy has been extremely complicated. They said any parents would be devastated to learn of their unborn child's trisomy 18 diagnosis. But some difficulties in pregnancy, however, even serious ones, do not pose the heightened risk to the mother that the exception encompasses. What do you make of that? You know, I have so many feelings right now. I am heartbroken for this mother. Uh, I am infuriated and I am indignant as a woman at the idea that Austin, Texas, or in state capitals and all sorts of states and judges who are not doctors are questioning what the medical advice to this woman is. Look, Caitlin, I had the news given to me that I had an ectopic pregnancy. That means that the fetus is not viable. And that means that if you don't terminate the pregnancy, you could die in the process. And so I know what it's like to get that heart-wrenching news. Her news is much worse. She's 21 weeks pregnant. She, she's fighting for her life. She's fighting for her fertility. Making her, give, taking away her choice, taking away her right, taking her, away her ability to get health care in her own state, I've heard so many people say online, cavalierly, casually, oh, but why didn't she go to another state? Do you know what it's like to have to terminate a wanted pregnancy and not be able to go and lay down in your own bed, not be able to go cry into your own pillow, not be able to lean on your friends and your family and your village where you live, not be able to go to see your doctors, to have to go out out of state, stay in a hotel, incur that cost, incur those extra days of missing work? Do people understand what that takes, having to leave your village in order to have to go vouch for your life and take care of your own health somewhere else? That is cruel. That is inhumane. That is certainly not American, and it's certainly not God's will. Shame on those politicians in Texas telling this woman what she can or cannot do. And I want to remind America that it's not just Texas. It's also Deborah Dorbert in Florida, the woman who had a fetus, who had a baby that had no kidneys and who was told that child was certainly going to die. And she couldn't get an abortion in Florida. 
and had to hold that baby in her arms for 90 minutes as that baby gasped for air and died in her arms. And it's 14 other states that have laws like this that are incredibly restrictive. And so for people who think maybe this is just Texas or maybe this is just Florida, no, every woman in America should be indignant at the idea that politicians are telling us and telling doctors what to do. Criminalizing doctors? Criminalizing doctors? Criminalizing women? Where, where do we live? Is this Gilead? It's horrendous. And I just want to say, first off, thank you for sharing that, because I know that there are a lot of other women probably watching right now who have had similar experiences. And so just you saying that out loud, I think it is really powerful. And when you talk about what a woman goes through, who, who has to have this procedure, what, what it means in the aftermath of that. You know, what I also thought about with Kate Cox is, you know, she left the state of Texas today to go get this procedure. There are a lot of women who can't afford to leave their home states to go and have, mm-hmm. I think about my home state of Alabama, there are a lot of women there who can't afford to go out of state to somewhere that, that they can get this procedure. That's right. Listen, the woman I mentioned in Florida, Deborah Dorbert, uh, could not afford to go out of state. I mean, it's it's so, do people understand the amount of people who don't have the savings to be able to on one day or the other? It, it requires looking for a doctor out of state. It requires paying for travel. It might require paying for childcare. It requires in your home state. It requires staying in a hotel, staying somewhere as you recover. You know, this is not like getting your nails done. These are procedures that require days off and recovery. And you're doing it, what, in a hotel, in a different state that you had to? And, and in some of these states, in places like Florida, in places like Texas, in the uh, southeast coast, you have to drive thousands of miles to get to a state where you might be able to get this done. It, it just, it, it, is, it is cruel, it is callous to think, oh, she can go to another state. And listen, we may not have seen the end of this, right? Because in Texas, any Yahoo can uh, press charges against this woman. Any Yahoo can bring uh, suits against this woman and criminalize this woman or criminalize anybody who may have helped her in doing this. It is absurd. It is, I feel like I am reading a chapter of The Handmaid's Tale. I cannot believe this is the United States of America and 2023. And I hope the women who are feeling like I do today do not forget this and carry this indignation and this anger and this infuriation to the ballot and to the voting booth. Because those people, mostly men in state capitals, who are telling us what we can and cannot do deserve to be voted out. And Navarro, again, thank you for sharing that personal story with us and with everybody out there. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on tonight. Up next, Ukrainian President Zelensky has just returned to Washington. He has key meetings on a schedule tomorrow with President Biden and lawmakers. He's hoping to rescue what is currently a stalled aid package. Republican senators, including my next guest, will be critical to the potential outcome. What you're seeing here is what many Ukrainians live in fear of, a Russian missile strike destroying this home, not on some remote battlefield, 
This is in the heart of Ukraine, right in the capital of Kyiv, what you're seeing here. In the east, Ukrainian troops have been pushing the Russians back with improvised drones, but their weapons to fight off President Putin's forces are dwindling as negotiations in Washington over more funding have stalled amid Republican demands for immigration changes to be included. I think it'll be very difficult without American help, he says. Our supplies are also ending, so we need theirs. That's Ukrainian soldier that you're hearing from there as Ukrainian President Zelensky is also bringing that same appeal to the White House and to Capitol Hill tomorrow. He says that Putin is seeing his, quote, dreams come true as delays for more aid are continuing in Congress tonight. I'm joined now by Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Senator, thanks for joining uh, on such an important issue. Obviously, as I mentioned, President Zelensky is coming before the entire Senate tomorrow morning. Is there anything that you could hear from the Ukrainian president that he could say that could change your mind on getting a Ukraine aid bill passed before the end of the year? Well, Caitlin, well, first of all, I'm, I'm highly sympathetic with the courageous people of Ukraine who have been invaded by the war criminal Putin. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt about that. At the same time, I'm, I'm highly sympathetic to all the families who have lost loved ones to fentanyl overdoses. I'm, I'm highly sympathetic to uh, the, the young women who are sex trafficked uh, because of our open borders. Uh, President Biden and the Democrats' open border policy is a clear and present danger to America. About six million migrants uh, during his administration have entered this nation. Either they've been encountered, processed, and dispersed or about 1.7 million have been detected as gotaways. We have no idea who these people are or where they are. Where they are. And when you have Hamas calling for days of rage and the FBI director saying that uh, all, the, all the flashing lights, uh, you know, all the danger signals are flashing right now, it's something we need to be concerned about. So, you know, un unfortunately, this is about the only leverage Republicans have to force this administration to actually secure the border. And I think we ought to take that opportunity because this is our top, our top national security and homeland security uh, so priority is to secure that border. I understand this is a big push from Senate Republicans. They want immigration changes tied to a part of this. I want to talk about your views on the border, what you think needs to happen. But but on this issue specifically, is do you believe that Ukraine aid, another fund, round of funding, will get passed this year, which the White House says it urgently needs to happen, not be punted to 2024? That's hard to say. We have to secure our border, not just getting minor immigration changes, we actually have to secure the border. It's a national security imperative, priority for America. Uh, in terms of what happens in Ukraine, uh, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, we're into the 22nd month of now what is just a, a bloody stalemate. Um, it's not a fair fight. Ukraine cannot really do what would be necessary to uh, really defeat Russia. So the only way this war ends is through a negotiated settlement. Every day that goes by, more Ukrainians die, more Russian conquerors, conscripts die. I take no, no pleasure in that. Uh, more of Ukraine is destroyed. So I think the strategy on the part of uh, the administration in Ukraine should be trying to, you know, use whatever aid they get, to try and bring uh, Putin to a negotiated settlement. But if you don't give them any aid, I mean, what does that look like? A negotiated settlement? What do you think that they, they should cede? How do they decide what to give up to Russia? Well, again, it's very difficult to say exactly what they need. We've, we've heard different things. Uh, for one thing, we've heard uh, an advisor, President Zelensky, say they're stealing their, like there's no tomorrow. 
Uh, we heard that uh, Ukraine's, you know, pretty good funding through the winter, and then all of a sudden now it's the end of December. So, unfortunately, you cannot trust this administration to tell you the truth. Uh, I'd like to get the truth out of them. Don't know that's really going to be uh, uh, forthcoming. But again, the top priority of our nation right now is to secure our border, not just minor well, immigration Senator, reform and not send American taxpayers tax, tax dollars over to Ukraine, as sympathetic, as sympathetic as I am with the Ukrainian people. Those questions you have about the policy, I mean, wasn't there a briefing on Capitol Hill last week where administration officials were there talking about why they needed more aid for this funding? Did you ask them those questions then? They were asked. They don't. They don't answer the questions. Again, one, one senator who'd been, you know, brief said that, uh, you know, Ukraine had, uh, you know, they're going to be fine through the end of the winter, and asked the question. So why now is at the end of December? You don't get a straight answer out of them. So again, you you simply can't trust this administration to tell you the truth. But did you ask those questions? I asked, uh, what is the end game here? Yeah, you know, I, I asked, uh, you know, when, when I was at uh, President Zelensky's inauguration, when I met with him uh, two months later, because I was the European. The, the chairman of the European Subcommittee on Foreign Relations. Back then, President Zelensky wanted a peace agreement with Putin. This is when Putin had already annexed Crimea and went firmly in control of eastern Ukraine. He wanted to do a peace deal. I don't know what changed from then to now. I know the impeachment was well, not he helpful invaded. I mean, I don't think Putin ever would have invaded Ukraine. under Trump. But again, he's, he invaded because of the weakness of this administration. It's a tragedy. It's okay, a tragedy saying, happened because of President Biden's weakness. Senator, okay, but you're saying you, you don't understand what changed. I mean, Russia did invade. We all watched it, of course, and it's that invasion is still going on. But you talk about your, your concern for the Ukrainians and what happens there. I understand you don't like what you're hearing from the White House, but is the answer to that stopping all funding from, from, to Ukraine from the U.S.? Because they're celebrating it, what happened in the Senate last week on Russian I've, state I've, TV. I've, and, I've, and I've said repeatedly. Well. I've said repeatedly, I would not only vote for, but I would promote funding for Ukraine if it is made contingent on actually securing the border by establishing metrics, monthly metrics that the administration would have to meet before the funding would flow on a monthly basis. I would vote for that. I would promote it. But this administration must secure the border before we send additional funding to Ukraine. It's, it's an easy proposition. We would be doing the administration an enormous political favor if we force them to secure the border. That would take one of the biggest problems President Biden has in terms of his reelection off the table. We would force him to do yeah. that. We'd be doing him a huge favor. I don't know why he doesn't understand that. Uh, what you're asking for, and I'm not sure how this would work, is basically you want aid to Ukraine conditioned on, on how many people are crossing the U.S. Southern border, I, I think that's a big question. Yes. But before I let you go, Senator, I do want to ask about this. Obviously, it's your home state. Ten Republicans who signed paperwork falsely claiming that Trump won there in the 2020 election have now agreed to withdraw that paperwork, acknowledge that Joe Biden did win the election, and also agree to, to not serve as an elector in the 2024 election or in any election where Trump is on the ballot. But there is one person who still serves, Robert Spindell, in a state agency that is responsible for administering elections and certifying the results. Do you think that he should resign from that, given the role he played in the fake elector scheme? No. Again, there was an active court case. There are all kinds of irregularities in Wisconsin in the 2020 election. And in order to make sure that uh, the case just wasn't uh, determined to be moot, they had to have an alternate slate of electors, just like Democrats have done repeatedly in all kinds of different states. There was nothing untoward about what they did. There was nothing illegal about what they did. They were just an alternate slate of electors. They were going to court. They had $2.4 million on the line in damages. 
if they lost this case at trial. That's I, why I, they I know they, they they've been harassed. They've, they've, but to say you're I, saying I, re- that they I realize did Democrats wrong? have used the civil courts to harass these poor individuals. It's unfortunate. It's a travesty. But that's what Democrats do. They they view politics as a blood sport. It was unfortunate. These folks did nothing different than what many Democrats have done in, in many states they certainly throughout our did, history. Senator, I mean, there were multiple slates of fake, ele- fake electors, including in your home state. They're acknowledging that they were playing a role in trying to improperly overturn the election. That's what they said. They, they, as part they got of this themselves agreement. out of a nuisance lawsuit. They they agreed to get to settle a nuisance lawsuit that never should have been brought. So you think it's it fine that someone lawsuit. It was a travesty of justice. You think it's fine that someone who who tried to overturn a legitimate election is still on a Democrat board electors have certifies. done that repeatedly. Democrats have done Which Democrats one? have done the same thing. In, Republicans in Wisconsin, have tried to fake slates of electors. No, it's, it's happened in different states. I, Which I, one, I didn't come sir? prepared to give you the exact states, but it's happened. It's happened repeatedly. It has happened repeatedly. Just go check the books. Which books? I mean, there have been alternate slates of electors by Democrat uh, electors in our history. Again, I, you didn't. This wasn't what this interview was going to be about. I'll, I'll come and I'll provide you the information. But I'm okay. Absolutely I look forward to. That. I look forward to your office sending that information. We'll publish it if it's if we'll it's accurate. That. Senator Ron Johnson, a busy day ahead on Capitol Hill. Thank you for your time tonight. Have a Merry Christmas. Meanwhile, in Russia, Putin's nemesis and opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, apparently has disappeared from prison. The White House says it is deeply concerned by this development. What his daughter is now saying tonight. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, Russia's most prominent opposition leader and one of Vladimir Putin's fiercest critics, his arch nemesis, really, Alexei Navalny, appears to be missing. Putin finds him to be such a threat that you may recall Russian agents tried to kill him by poisoning his underwear with a lethal nerve agent. He survived, but just barely. And despite that attack on his life, he returned to Moscow. Navalny was then convicted on bogus charges and sent to a harsh penal colony. His daughter just spoke to Anderson Cooper about these concerns about his whereabouts tonight. There have been many instances where they have transferred him or just didn't want him to come out because whenever my dad has a court hearing, he uses that uh, to speak up against the war or tell people to question the regime. And uh, Putin has actually just announced that he is going to be running for re-election in the coming presidential elections, and they don't want my father to speak up against that. Here with me tonight is the director of the CNN Films Oscar-winning documentary, Navalny, Daniel Rohr. Daniel, thank you for being here. I mean, I know that you've been speaking with Navalny's daughter that we just saw there, his other family members who are obviously deeply concerned about him tonight. What have you heard from them? Well, uh, Caitlin, in addition to what the rest of the world knows, that Navalny has uh, functionally been disappeared by the Russian government. 
Um, we don't know where he is, and, and that is so very unsettling in lieu of assassination attempts and, and, and repeated attempts to silence him um, over the last 24 months, over the last 10 years, really. Um, but on an emotional level for Dasha and Yulia, Alexei's daughter and wife, obviously it is devastating and upsetting and disorienting when your husband and father just disappears at the hands of this regime. It's very, very unsettling. What's your sense of, of, of what Putin is doing here? I mean, after being part of that documentary that was so incredible and just really showed what a threat Navalny is to Putin, how much he views him as a threat, what's your, what's your biggest fear about this? Well, Caitlin, I think it goes without saying that my biggest fear is that the regime is trying to murder Alexei. This is a project that they started years ago. Originally, they tried to poison him with this Soviet-era nerve agent called Novichok, the events of which are depicted in our documentary. Um, and since then, they have thrown him in prison, where he has been in a gulag, in solitary confinement, in torturous conditions for the better part of the last three years. It's very clear that they're trying to silence him. Um, now, this, this latest disappearance comes three or four days after Putin announces that he's going to be running again in Russia's next sham election for another six years of power. And it's no coincidence that Navalny disappears a mere three or four days after Putin makes announcement. What it really speaks to is just how frightened the regime is, how nervous Putin personally is about this guy. I think it's a, obviously just such a concern for everyone. Of course, no answers that his family or his attorneys have gotten, and we'll be watching it all closely. Daniel Rohr, thank you. Meanwhile, another story that we're following here, Rudy Giuliani was back in court today, found liable for defaming two election workers. Now a jury is about to decide the price that he is going to pay. Donald Trump's former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, facing a potentially ruinous trial of his own tonight as he could be forced to pay up to $43 million in damages to the two former Georgia election workers, mother and daughter, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, you know them well, who were simply doing their jobs back in 2020 when Giuliani falsely accused them of voter fraud, trying to demonize them as symbols of a rigged election that wasn't rigged. He claimed that they were acting suspiciously and, yeah, I'm being serious now, saying like they were acting like drug dealers, accusations that led to them being harassed by people who even showed up at their home. Rudy Giuliani has already been found liable for defaming these two women, but now we're in the penalty phase of this case. This is how day one went. Do you regret what you did to Ruby? Of course I don't regret I told the truth. They, they were engaged in changing votes. There's no proof of that. Oh, you're damn right there is. Stay tuned. There is no proof of that. It's not true. It wasn't true then. It's not true now. Here tonight is someone with the truth, Andrew Kurtzman, who knows Rudy Giuliani extremely well, having followed him for three decades as a political reporter and the author of Giuliani, The Rise and Tragic Fall of America's Mayor. I mean, what do you make of the defiance that you see of him coming out of court as he did today. That's, it's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it's very um, characteristic of Giuliani, who never admits uh, fault in anything. But, you know, seeing what he's facing in terms of damages, you know, and sticking to that uh, 
to that um, allegation is really something. It's really something. I mean, he is about to potentially have to pay a lot of money that we know he doesn't have. His attorney today was saying that $43 million would be the civil equivalent of the death penalty. But I wonder, as someone who's covered him for as long as you have, what you make of the fact that he's being held accountable for what he said. Right. Well, you know, I think Giuliani is finally paying the price for a lifetime of character assassination. I mean, you you know, uh, destroying reputations is what Rudy Giuliani does. He did it as prosecutor. He did it as mayor. Uh, In my book, I write about his uh, an election campaign in Catholic school when he stood up in an audience and eviscerated a candidate for senior class president. I mean, this is what Giuliani is and what he what he's done. And, you know, in some ways, the public, uh, when he was mayor, kind of appreciated it. I mean, he took over uh, New York City as a mayor when New York was in decline. His predecessor was kind of a passive presence. And Giuliani was a fighter. And, you know, the New York Times endorsed him for re-election in 1997. They called him a human hand grenade. Right. There was something about him that people. But they meant it as a compliment. Liked. They then? meant it as a compliment. Absolutely. Um, and now the know, grenade has the pin has been pulled. Yeah. Well, you know, Donald Trump certainly liked those qualities um, in Giuliani. And the problem now in this in this trial is that um, he's under a microscope because he, he they lost the election. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was clearly easy um, to determine that Giuliani was wrong about this. And now he's paying the price. And But he's still defiant and coming <laughs> out, you know, with his advisor there. But I've also noticed, just as someone who has covered this world and used to see Rudy Giuliani at the White House all the time, he seems very isolated right. from this life that he used to have. Sure. I mean, he's also broke, right? So, I mean, he is... You know, at, at one point, uh, you know, when right after 9-11, his um, consulting firm earned $100 million in five years. I mean, he owned, was it seven houses and 11 country club memberships? I mean, he was on top of the world. You know, fast forward, you know, he's selling his apartment as, you know, his last, uh, I guess, asset, trying to stave off this, uh, trying to stave off bankruptcy. So what does it mean if he is, if he gets hit with $43 million? I mean, even half of that. Right. Um, I think he'll have to he'll have to declare bankruptcy. I mean, he's got ten civil suits filed against him right now. He's been indicted. He's an uh, unindicted co-conspirator uh, conspirator in, in D.C. He's just thinking he's of Rudy Giuliani, overwhelmed. Rudy Giuliani having to file bankruptcy though is is kind of remarkable to if you to watch the political world to know what he used to to right. be. Well, it's you know it's one of the great rise and fall stories of our lifetime. Andrew Kurtzman, as someone who has covered it, I mean, it's a dramatic story. Thank you for that. Sure. And thank you so much for joining us tonight. Seeing a news night with Abby Phillips starts right after a quick break. So stick around. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. 
Max subscription required.